welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is the first in this year's series of Sundance episodes done entirely remotely this year. Not even a smidgen of me or my guests will be in Park City. <laughs> Although, come to think of it, that might be a thing to do. I'll just send a lock of my hair to Park City so that technically I'm on site. But there is a whole lineup to go through, so it's at least we don't have to... Uh, you know, pick and choose in terms of what we see, but it is, you know, different for all the reasons we've talked about before and the virtual festival phenomena. And for this inaugural voyage, I'm very happy to be joined by, last thing I saw regular stalwart, curator of film at the Museum of Moving Image, Eric Hines. Hello, Eric. Hello, Nick. Hi. I feel like this is uh, not only my am I, am I a regular of sorts, but I feel like us on opening day of Sundance is a regular. I think that's true. Yeah. Yes. Back in the film comment days, we would sort of do these from Sundance. And then since then last year as well, for the last thing I saw, Mm -hmm. I feel like this Mm -hmm. is just kind of our, our regular hangout. (laughs) It is. Yeah. And I guess we're only, we're only missing a certain amount of bleary eyedness from the altitude. Well, a hell of a lot of bleary eyedness. And, you know, and we're also doing this at an acceptable midday time when in previous years we would do this after all the screenings had finished. (laughs) <laughs> at about 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. But that also led to some punchiness that maybe we're lacking at the moment. So, Well, I've actually been drinking since 8 a.m. <laughs> just to replicate that, that feeling. Um, and so I've been punching great. myself in the chest all morning to try to lose breath. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, and it is a, a different festival. I don't know, before we get into a couple of the movies, I, I was curious what, what your thoughts were generally just going into this 2022 edition. I remember after last year, there, you know, the online only Sundance 2021, considering the state of everything went, I think, spectacularly well for them. And the idea that yeah. um, it was it was kind of appointment streaming. Uh, people were really tuning in. This notion of Sundance being kind of more accessible through the internet came to fruition and there were films that people were excited about. There were lots of sales. There was kind of this, 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 this thought being passed around like, well, maybe we don't need in-person festivals. Maybe this is actually more than, more than okay. And I remember being terrified of that, not unhappy that things Mm. worked out for Sundance, but sort of terrified that we were going to learn the wrong lessons that instead of getting, getting away with it and doing what was needed to, to get through the year, um, and to keep the industry going and to have filmmakers have an opportunity to, to release their films, et cetera, et cetera, that it was like we were going to somehow like get rid of all the other things that we miss and need right. um, from this thing. And there even was, I, I don't know, like I thought that was a that was a possibility for something like Sundance, which I think can get, a, I'm, I'm using sort of pejorative terms, like getting away with something that other festivals kind of can't and couldn't uh, in terms of being that successful with the model. And so I was actually heartened that over the course of the year, it became clear that Sundance really wanted to go back in, in person, that there would be an online portion, but there would be, uh, there make our way back to in person. So I'm incredibly heartbroken for them and for the filmmakers. And I think for the industry too, that, that we're not there, that we're not doing something in person. It was the right call. It was absolutely the right thing to do. It's just terrible, terrible timing and terrible mm-hmm. geography in terms of where things were where things are in terms of the the wave of Omicron taking over America. Um, It was the right call, but I'm heartbroken for them and also feeling like there's something different about this year's Sundance where it feels like we've lost something even greater because we were, we thought we were going to get it back, but that loss, the sense of like, we thought we were going to get back and we lost. It makes me feel 
better this year than I did last year about there being an in-person festivals going forward. You know, because mm-hmm. I just think there's there's nothing about this that feels like this is just as good. This is even, actually even better. Like that's not how okay. this feels. This just feels like fuck. Okay, shit. Up to three weeks ago, this was going to happen. Now it's not going to happen. We're going to do our best, and then I feel like we can participate in this and kind of give it our best as viewers too, without there being this kind of like fear this fear of kind of like ulterior corporate motives to to kind of take away from us something that is valuable what that is exactly the contours of, of what a festival should be in person um going forward is absolutely open for you know up for debate and will evolve but the idea that like we don't need these things i don't think anybody feels that right now no i think that's so true what you're saying this idea of the loss having two sides to it you know on the one hand really feeling the loss because it was incredibly recent that this really difficult call had to be made that was entirely understandable given the bad luck of the curve, basically, of, of how this pandemic plays out. Um, but yeah, then yeah, then the other side being preserving or reminding us what the in-person aspects, uh, what we're missing, <laughs> and that, you know, they're, they're not so easily replaced uh, yeah. by our virtual editions. And, yeah. um, but there seems to be, you know, enough goodwill oh, yeah. at the top of the year and this kind of spirit of yeah. wanting to have the party and wanting everyone to come. Is there anything more cruel than Venice happening without any hesitation two straight years in a row and Sundance I know. canceled two years in a row? Like the, the curve yeah. is cruel. And IDFA both times being like it's happening, but it's on the edge. Like it's just, it, yeah. it's, you know, the, the arc is, is identical a couple years in a row. Yeah. Well, I guess the best we can do is talk about the, the movies and then, yes. you know, enact the festival in, in our way <laughs> through that. Because, you know, again, the thing that you really miss despite the, what is it called, spaceship, the various ways you can plop your, your head on a, on a little avatar and walk around. Uh, it's not the same as, you know, talking with people. Um, yes. I, I did already put, I think, a cat as my, as my head on the avatar. But I, anyway, I just feel, I feel like a... I feel like Gumby in there, you know, you're like this. Anyway, I love um, that you're antisocial, even in the virtual. <laughs> I'm never antisocial. I, I deny, I deny the allegation. I, I, tr- I tried, I, I loaded it up. I, I went in there and just immediately just, I don't know. Had, it just reminded me someone tweeted a picture of like a virtual rave going on. And it's just like, not from Sundance, but from, from somewhere else. So this, this year I'm sort of enjoying the depressing screen caps, uh, screen grabs and stuff <laughs> of the virtual. Because for, for the yeah. listener, if you don't know, there is like this kind of virtual space, hangout space and viewing rooms for, for the festival this year. And last year I kept seeing it as this kind of, this is great. It's like we're all together. Look at us. We're in the breakout room hanging out. And I was like, get the, right. I was like, come on. Whereas this year, I feel like nobody, it's like, it's okay. This is what we've got. It's what it is. It's depressing. It looks absurd. <laughs> it's what it is. And I feel like now I can embrace it. <laughs> now I'm ready to yeah. go. Um, and yeah, I just, I just, I don't like fooling ourselves. And there's something about last year that felt a little bit like that. So this, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to put on a Donna cap and, uh, and interact with, <laughs> with, with people. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry that you can't see my avatar right now. You'll just have to imagine my avatar. <laughs> but uh, let, let's talk about a few of the movies that we've been able to see all, already. Yeah. Since yeah, yeah. opening day, uh, you know, as usual, is, is the kind of stacked evening of films against each other. So I know people always have to decide what to see. felt like there were a number of documentaries that were pretty interesting to talk about. A movie that really stood out to me, even this early, is uh, Tantura. 
Yeah. Which is a documentary. It is about what's variously called the War of Independence at the founding of, of Israel uh, in 1948. I mean, you know, as I as I kind of grope my way to describing it, you realize that's 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 the movie basically, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is how do you describe the past? How do you describe these foundational events, uh, which just have a broad label put on them of being, you know, either a war of independence or the Nakba, assorted dislocations, deportations, lootings, massacres going on, and I thought this was a tremendously strong film. I thought so too. One way to sort of begin to talk about it for me is that I appreciate it about it, but is also kind of worth putting in perspective when you encounter it is I actually think this is one of these films that is made by an Israeli and it's really sort of, it's, it's not made for an international audience. It's accessible for an international audience. Obviously you and I responded to it strongly, um, but it's a film that I think is very consciously talking to its neighbors rather mm. than broadcasting to the world it's not looking for it's it basically it's like we need to reckon with ourselves we need to reckon with a, a history that we're not acknowledging that we're willfully ignoring rather than you know going out to the world and saying this is what this is who we are this is you know condemn us from the outside i mean obviously both are possible and both are plausible but i do feel like where it's coming from and the conversation is having with itself and with its subjects is crucial to why it works for me you know um mm -hmm. it doesn't feel positioned um, in an overt way. And I think when you're dealing with something like this, where um, you know you're going to get opposition and you know there's a good portion of the population that wants nothing to do with this even being talked about, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there's there's a way in which the, the film approaches things, which is, I think, on a real kind of conversational one-on-one -on -one level. And therefore it works for me because of that, you know, as a film. Mm -hmm. um, it is it's very interview-based. There's a, there's a gentleman, Katz, who's, who's sort of the main subject of it because he did work he wrote a thesis back in the in the 90s city cats and uh and that winds up being kind of its own historical moment uh in the late 90s along with the 1948 relocation if you if you will um of the palestinians um and it's really kind of it's it's about this story that no one's reckoning with but it's also how like generation after generation willfully ignores the story and mm -hmm. something about that that feels like incredibly powerful and uh you know not to sort of compare a very very different film but there's there's some parallels there in terms of it being kind of a psychological portraiture of a nation and, and of a nation's mytho self-mythology with with the viewing booth um you know mm -hmm. the way that you can sort of be confronted with information be confronted with facts and simply either put them away or deny them um knowing yeah. full well what you're doing knowing full well that, like this is we need to do we need you know we need to not actually talk about truth because truth is not as not as important to us as how we think of ourselves yeah you know you, you you said you know as as a film it's interview driven and i was so impressed with how it's it's driven by those interviews because the selection of people are israeli soldiers at the time uh tantura is the name i don't think i think we've don't think we've said yet but sure. tantura is the name of this coastal village uh, which one person describes as being, you know, pretty fairly comfortably off village uh, that was invaded and basically cleared by Israeli soldiers. And so what you have are veterans, you know, alternately denying anything untoward happened or remembering selected things or saying things happened, but I really shouldn't talk about them because it would be a scandal yeah. or, you know, 
taking a while to say something, but then later on we revisit with this soldier who starts talking about things that happened or describing another soldier entirely who did a lot of the bad things. And just this kind of hot potato of responsibility and and the burden of the horrors that you know people committed or knew about. And that's really Im- impressive the way it's, it, it's done. I mean, it's done, I mean, that's sort of one aspect, just almost like technically how it's put together that way. And then the other is just that, I mean, broadly speaking, it's a movie that kind of puts facts to what had turned into kind of a rhetorical yeah. debate. Yeah. It's really, again, really deft how the director, Alan Schwartz, accomplishes this because the inescapable parallel at the time is with you know Jewish refugees uh, to the Palestinian refugees at this time, and but connecting those dots has I feel like been treated like a third rail or something inflammatory even to do mm-hmm. um, yeah. at, at at the current moment. And what this film, in a pretty methodical kind of actually low key way, lets people connect those dots and lets the evidence well up, um, you know, without turning the filmmaker into some you know investigator or or without making things look any more shocking than the facts actually are yeah uh right this that everything about this is done in a way that i am generally curious how as you put it like neighbors uh or you know people in in the community would react to this Um, because then you also have interviews with professors with a professor for example who's just like i don't want i don't care i i you know i don't want to know about i don't want to care yeah. Or, or veterans of a kibbutz who are just like, is it important to the Palestinians? Well, then I don't want to know about it. Sure. You know, I don't, I don't want it to be remembered. That's the purpose of the memorial. And if that's the purpose, I don't want it to be remembered. Just these kind of matter of fact statements. Yeah. And yeah, again, it's something that's hard to talk about because I know it's an incredibly sensitive period of history. Yeah. Uh, but that's why I found this movie so incredibly uh, illuminating on any number of levels. Anyway, I'm kind of going on. But no, no, really, yeah. But it winds up becoming about how moral higher ground is more important than truth, is more mm. important than even the kind of like messy work of nation building. You know, like it's just like moral higher ground is what supersedes everything. So if the truth complicates mm-hmm. that, then you need to bury that truth, you know, or you need to yeah. somehow explain away that truth as somehow like there's there's a fascinating moment where there's this one soldier who kind of denies anything happened and then we go back to him and he actually talks in detail about machine gunning Mm -hmm. down you know Mm -hmm. people with their hands up but he still puts even that into a context of moral superiority you know of a moral higher ground and that's where you see like oh right it it almost doesn't matter how distinct and clear the facts are here it almost doesn't matter like like they know the facts sometimes in certain conversations they may agree to that but even if they acknowledge those facts they acknowledge you know what we mm-hmm. might consider kind of an atrocity it's within the context of, of being on a moral higher plane from which that came and mm-hmm. and it's, yeah. it's it's you can't get around that you can't convince anybody of, of 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 another way of thinking but i think the film is valuable to sort of show you the evolution of that thinking you know yeah you're so right to bring up the moral perspective that people bring to it. Uh, it didn't happen, uh, but even if it did, you know, we were right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that's also where the movie bridges, again, without pushing the parallel uh, in this direction, uh, with American history. Sure. And at one point, uh, one of the interviewees says, you know, I, I, I don't know any other country like this, like Israel. You know, we're, we're taught that we're a moral country. 
and I feel like a lot of American viewers might see that and think like, well, I know a country like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's another instance where you, you can, you can just see reflections for a lot of societies there. Um, and, you know, the echoes, you know, you, you see a lot of documentaries, which are like, this is, this is an echo of what's happening now, you know, but it, right, right there, you, you only have to think about current attempts to suppress parts of American history going on right now to do with slavery, for example, or anything perceived as being, you know, a, a blot on, sure. on the American story. That was also very with me in the movie. It's something that I, I hope a lot of people see and aren't scared away by the notion that it's it's somehow whatever its opponents would call it, you know, a, a smear job or, yeah. or this. Well, or that, that that will it's, come. It's a, that that lobby will become. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that and and even if you're not inclined to believe that, there's something about the noise that gets made around that that will keep people away. You know. Yeah. Inevitably. In, um, yeah. <laughs> and, um. And from being, you know, having done the theatrical release for the viewing booth and. Um, and also sort of having mm. it as part of our first look at the museum, I can say without being getting into specifics that when it came time to coverage of that film, um, there was a sort of noticeable silence in certain areas where you wouldn't expect it. You know, there's ways of sort of making noise and there's also ways of just kind of letting something fall away. And opening night at Sundance is a good start in terms of this film actually being right yeah. and seen. Yeah. Kudos for putting this right on right there yeah, as, as an opening film. And I think the movie can connect pretty logically with, with another movie that's actually on the, on, the, on the second day at Sundance. So fresh in our minds because it's just shown. And that is Riotsville. Yes. And if uh, Tantura is more interview driven and also, you know, audio driven, because I guess we, we might not have mentioned that there's a lot of in audio interviews in, yes. in there. Yeah, um, the original research that is the, the, the base of a lot of the film is audio interviews from the, from the 90s yeah yeah riotsville is is driven by footage from government archives and television archives and then i immediately hasten to say footage that i would bet you have not seen already um which is <laughs> always kind of an important thing to add yeah. um, and i think some of the most most amazing footage is is right there in the title riotsville was the name of a fake village, a kind of, I'm thinking village because of Potemkin village, basically like a, a set uh, that was a training ground for riot police, yeah. um, basically. And, you know, it had also like audience stands where, you know, concerned officials could watch that, yes, the government did indeed have a tactics to address the um, uprisings and demonstrations that were going on in the late 60s. So that's kind of like the spine of the movie, you know, but then it, it includes all sorts of interesting uh, debate and discussion around that as it was playing out in other arenas. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just say one little caveat is that almost everybody involved with this film is a friend or an associate in some way. So take that as you will in terms of my comments on it. But um, otherwise, very objectively, I would say that this film is in some ways like really exciting development, I think, of what has been sort of gathering in terms of a, a style or approach or discipline for Sierra Pettengill, the filmmaker, in that she had these shorts, The Raven Image and The Rifleman over the last couple of years mm -hmm. that are, are archive-based as well. Uh, but they're also text, they're kind of, they use a lot of text in a way that I think a lot of filmmakers who work in archival footage are, are, are reluctant and somehow like it, it, to, to break the spell of just pure archive 
is, uh, mm-hmm. is, is, is somehow a weakness. And I think that Sierra sort of very much doesn't approach things that way. And I think is liberal with, with text and text on image. And I really love the way that that's handled in this because um, it allows for little side roads to develop. You know, it allows the kind of moments to linger a little bit and and some information to be put forth or ideas to be introduced that because of the sort of the, the pace of it and because of the kind of complex way that it's constructed, it, it just allows for things to come into the space that if you were being strict with setting these rules uh, in terms of archive only, no voiceover, no, like whatever, if you're going to mm-hmm. sort of set these kind of rules for yourself, you wouldn't have the opportunity to do the things that this gets to do. And as you're saying, because a lot, you haven't seen a lot of this footage before, um, you don't necessarily even know where it's coming from. And it's really enlightening and useful and compelling to have, you know, a little sideline about the kind of public television that, you know, existed before PBS that um, played a huge role in both kind of bringing sort of difficult conversation about, you know, civil rights in the 60s into the public eye, but then also suffering for it. That's Mm -hmm. not necessarily what you would expect from a film called Riotsville set in what you described, but it actually becomes a significant part of the film. And I think that that combination of archive and text allows for it. And really nobody else is doing that. Yeah. And the text extending to text for the voiceover Right. Uh, which is its own component of, of the film. Uh, I guess it's composed by Toby Haslett, a critic and scholar who's contributed to The New Yorker. And so that kind of gives uh, an, an extra like rhetorical force yeah. um, to, to the movie, finding words to characterize the arc of what's going on. I mean, what's substantively going on is we're, we're watching the United States develop some kind of like perverse immune system for popular dissent, um, right, right. and uh, especially you know among blacks, you so you it's like you feel this government machine going into motion out of some sort of panic, <laughs> um, and Riotsville is partly an imaginative act. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's about visualizing control, um, and then you know of course enacting control at the same time. And in this the second half of the movie, you know one of the great ways that the movie shows us things we haven't seen as much about is that so much of this narrative is around like the um, Chicago democratic national convention and, and that whole you know, mythology that's developed around it. Um, it also shows the Republic national convention. Um, and I think there's a great line of the voiceover that's like, that's what we're still living through. Yeah. Or that's, that's, that's the reality we're living in. And of course the, it was set uh, in Miami or Miami beach and consequently, you know, it was not the sort of arena for that would allow the same scale of protests and the same, you know, as they would have regarded like inappropriate chaos and, and all that. Um, although at the same time, there were demonstrations. And this is a stretch of his, his history and a way of describing it and getting at it that, I, I, you know, I, I hadn't seen a lot of. And that plus other ways of visualizing for us dialogue around race at the time sure. through, you know, these debates um, including this incredible, like, simultaneous link-up in many cities from, you know, intellectuals, police officials that was broadcast uh, as some sort of television event, um, which is fascinating to to kind of see revived and, and for us to, to watch. So there are all these many different facets that, that we get to watch a story that, again, we think we're so familiar with. And then also you see echoes to now in terms of like militarization. That's been something that people talk about that, you know, after September 11th is when things were militarized right. with with uh, police forces in, you know, 
in this case, there's here's the chapter of history where we see that you know that sort of funding was happening in response to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, '68. So anyway, it's immediately something where you 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 pull at a thread at it and you start thinking about many other things, and I think that's a characteristic of the movie generally. Yeah, and, and you're mentioning the kind of parallels with today or the kind of roots for where we are. I think that 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 uh, text moment or the voiceover moment where they talk about the Republican National Convention as being kind of the world we're living might be one of the only times that it really makes that explicit. And I appreciated mm. that um, because it's just there for you. You know, you just you can't yeah. you can't ignore it. Like this is indeed, if not the actual birthplace, but where a lot of things began that we're living within. Like you're saying, the militarization of the police, the idea that kind of that you could have like an armored truck in a city and, and, that, and, it, and it sort of mm-hmm. was developed during that time. And there's dopey news footage, news coverage of, of, of these coming into towns and such. And, and, and of course we've been there now since then, but like that, that is a, that is a significant mm-hmm. turn, you know, and it's a significant yeah. turn to address what the film sort of take pains to show was even by moderate and Republican committee recognized as being kind of a just and understandable unrest and the response to that was to not do anything but kind of, mm-hmm. you know, kettle people together and quell dissent. And I should say that I, I knew that this film was in development for a long time. And, and when we were living through the summer of 2020, I remember feeling, God, I hope this film makes it. I hope this film comes mm-hmm. out. I hope this film yeah. um, can make its way into our public understanding of our own history and acknowledge our present because I feel like seeing the long as you're saying that this is not just a 21st century phenomena this is something that has been going on for a very long time it was a direct response to what we all think of as kind of being the last time as a society there was widespread collective dissent and protest and there's a reason why there's something about this that's very cyclical and kind of futile it feels and that's because they've designed it this way to mm-hmm. to to make it nearly impossible for us to change the way things are anyway so it's it's certainly sobering in that way but i think really valuable to see something so historical and archivally based uh speak directly to where we are yeah and then i mean and for me the the function that these kind of uh excavations can serve is basically that it it doesn't have to be this way (laughs) you know if you show how the thing was created if, if you show how these forces are not an accident you know and the way you know, demonstrations are treated and either at the street level or on, on a like national level of dialogue, then you can understand that it didn't have to be that way. It yep. doesn't have to be that totally. way. Totally. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, that again is Riotsville, uh, directed by Sierra Pettengill, whose Rifleman was a short last year in Sundance. So some people might have seen that then. And I think that might uh, do it for our first episode, but there will be more. Yeah. Um, and I will be roping Eric in again later on uh, once we've got a few thousand more movies under our belt. But any parting thoughts? I was just saying that, I mean, we're, we're kind of looking at the films in the first day and a half or so. And obviously there's a few yeah. dense days to come. So I'm, I'm eager to talk to you when we both have seen like a, a dozen or so films. We have a sense of what the, the character of, of the programming might be, you know, um, but I will say that the fact that, you know, opening night doesn't always have a really valuable work. Sometimes they, 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 they lean towards the the popular and the easy to please, which I get I, I, as a programmer, I totally understand that. So to walk away with something like Tentura from opening night, I'm very grateful for that. No, absolutely. So we'll, we'll be back with more movies in, I don't know, just as soon as I can, I can see some more movies here and, and get another podcast together and, and get someone to eat. I got to get someone to Call eat. Call me up. Anyway, please. sorry. Get me on the horn. I'll, 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 I'll get you on the horn. Get me on the horn. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you.
You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. Thank you for listening. Thank you.